Welcome to Uninhibited, a podcast with the mission to discuss taboo, multicultural, multigenerational, and multilayered topics that matter to women. My name is Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki. I am an Ivy League-trained OBGYN practicing medicine in rural America. I am married and raising three dynamic African-American boys. I am a mother, a career professional, a part of Generation X, and so much more. I bring to the table a true desire for social justice that informs my opinions, and my hope is that this podcast will open conversations, question beliefs, and be transformative. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Uninhibited. This is your host, Dr. Abdul Baki, and I'm glad that you tuned in. Today, we have with us in the studio Mrs. Daphne, who um, has um, a very interesting story um, to share with us in light of this, you know, this past summer with women's rights being attacked and um, trying to understand why women do need to have safe access to abortion. Um, I reached out on a Facebook group um, that's uh, supporting women and asked if anyone would care to share their stories. And Daphne was one of the first people to respond to me. So I am excited to discuss um, her history and her present and and what her plans are for the future. So welcome, Daphne. Thank you so much for having me, Makunda. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I am a 31-year-old white woman who lives in Texas. I have one son. His name is Solomon. He will be five uh, this October. Um, I grew up here in Texas and um, I currently am a yoga teacher and a priestess and an ordained minister that works uh, primarily with survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Wow, okay. So we had talked a little bit about a particular relationship um, with your your son's father. Can you tell us um, a little bit about how that relationship began, the, the earlier stages, the um, what, you know, what interests both of you shared? Uh, sure. Um, so back in my um, early and mid-20s, I was not on a spiritual path. I um, was engaging in a lot of self-destruction and um, doing a lot of drugs, and um, I ended up in prostitution for a little while. Um, and I met Justin... Um, in 2010, um, right at like my deepest, darkest moment. Um, I was, you know, as far down the rabbit hole as I would ever get at that point in my life. Um, and he was actually, interestingly, one of the people who helped pull me out of that. Um, he was a recovered addict himself and, um, you know, he felt a desire to protect me and to take care of me and, um, you know, encouraged me to get out of the lifestyle that I was in, um, and to make some changes in my life. Um, so I started my yoga teacher training and I had stopped all of the other things that I was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, slowly he was just like that friend that was always there. And he was constantly telling me how he'd been in love with me since the first time that he saw me and that he was a patient man. Um, and that one of these days I would fall in love with him because he was never going to leave. Um, and with the, you know, stuff that I had been through and, um, the stories that we tell as a society about, um, you know, what relationship is supposed to look like and what men are supposed to behave like and the ways that women are supposed to respond to that. Um, you know, it felt like, I don't know, it felt comforting almost that this man was just like patiently waiting for me. And um, eventually he did convince me to start dating him. And, um, you know, 
really, he treated me like a princess. Um, and I pretty much got whatever I wanted. He was constantly taking me out and paying for everything and taking me shopping. And, um, you know, I got, I got swept up in all of that. I had never been treated that way before, you know? Um, and so it was really easy for me to fall in love with him. So you would say, would it be kind of like he kind of grew on you just because of the kindness that he showed you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, like there were other things we had in common. We'd been friends for a long time. We really both enjoyed like fine food and craft cocktails. And so, you know, there were other interests that we shared that, um, you know, we we would do things together. We would go out together. And, um, he was a very, very funny man. He was always the life of the party. Everybody really loved him. His, you know, friend group was huge. Um, you know, like there was, there was this element of like feeling like I was on the arm of the most powerful man in the room anytime that I was with him. Um, and so, you know, over time, that feeling became like this, this feels safe and this feels like something that is overall good for me. How, if you can remember, how were you feeling about yourself at that time? Did, did you feel like because you were with him and because he desired you, that made you feel more whole or were you beginning the pathway to be, you know, kind of whole by yourself? Um, I would say both, you know, um, okay. you know, I had started, I had started that journey um, with my first yoga teacher training and um, I went through a lot of transformation and um, opening through that. And I went through a lot of processing around like the self-hatred and the shame that had led me to self-destructive path that I had been on. Um, so I had opened that door, but I was not yet there. Um, I was still really struggling with a lot of those things. And, um, you know, having him around did help me feel safe. You know, um, before him, I was already a survivor of sexual violence. I was already a survivor of domestic violence. And um, so I spent a lot of my time feeling really unsafe and um, really afraid. And having him around calmed those fears for me. It was like, as long as he was there, nobody else could hurt me. Okay. And so tell me, I guess, about... So what time period of this and then when when do you you guys decide you, you want to have a child together or or was it kind of not really a conscious decision? You just weren't really using anything to prevent it. Like, tell me, I guess, how that we transitioned into um, becoming pregnant. Um, so we were not being conscious about what we were doing. We were spending a lot of our time drinking. And, um, to be honest, the majority of our sexual encounters, I don't remember. Um, and so basically one day I wake up and I'm nauseous and I realize I haven't had a period in two months. And so I'm pregnant. Um, and at first I was like, freaking out and thinking like, I, I can't, I can't do this. Um, you know, and he reassured me that he would take care of us. And, um, you know, that even if it didn't work out romantically between me and him, that we had been friends long enough that we could figure this out and, um, you know, that we could raise this child together civilly as friends. Because um, we actually had only really been dating officially for about six months before I got pregnant. Okay. So did the pregnancy kind of cause you to re-examine your behaviors as far as with the alcohol, especially since you alluded to the self-destructive behaviors that you were able to to beat but then I mean now I'm sure you you must realize that the alcohol also you know to excess is a self-destructive behavior because it it clouded 
your judgment and and your ability to to be present when you guys were sexually active. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that nine months of pregnancy with my son um, was the first time in my life that I had spent any kind of extended period of time completely sober since I started drinking at 15. Um, and so there was a lot of reevaluation that happened during that time. There was a lot of personal and emotional growth that happened and spiritual growth that happened. And, um, you know, I started realizing and noticing, like, I didn't have anything in common with any of our friends um, outside of wow. drinking, you know? Wow. <clears throat> and so we, I started talking to Justin about this and really wanting to, like, help change our lives because we were about to have this baby and um, started asking him to cut out a lot of these people. Um, and, you know, he, he cut back on his time. Um, previous to this, like we were the, the party house and the party couple and everybody was always over. There was constantly at least three or four people there that, um, you know, weren't, didn't actually live there. Um, and so, you know, we created some boundaries and, um, you know, there were a couple of people that were living on our couch um, that we kicked out when Solomon was born. And, um, you know, it was like all of a sudden in the house, it was just me and him and his raging alcoholic father who couldn't keep a job that we were taken care of, um, and this infant. Um, and when that happened, suddenly things got really scary for me. Um, it was like a, a light switch flipped, you know, uh, when there was nobody else around and, um, you know, there was no one else for him to like point the finger at or blame for his frustration or his anger or, you know, his shortcomings or insecurities or whatever. Suddenly all of that stuff got turned on to me. Um, and I became the verbal and emotional punching bag, uh, for him. And, you know, one of the things that he would say is you don't have any skills. You can't go anywhere. Nobody else is going to take care of you. You have to stay because you need me. And if you leave, then you're going to not have any money. Um, because he had a hundred percent financial control. Um, even the money that I was making from teaching classes and working, um, he took from me and maintained control. I was going to ask about that because, um, that's often the case. There's often a financial control piece of it. You, you know, the, 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 the fairy tale part was you met your Prince Charming. He swept you off your feet. But the, the underlying part of that is once you're swept off your feet and you're in the castle, is the castle truly a castle? Really yours. <laughs> Or, or is it yours exactly yeah. or is it a or is it a prison and yeah um, and many women do find themselves getting swept off their feet and to the outside world everything looking beautiful like I'm sure if your friends went out and he picks up the tab it's like oh my gosh you've got a prince because you know there's yeah. so many people who don't have the finances to to pick up tabs but they don't know the, the underbelly, kind of the, the darker side. So there was the honeymoon period. When did it change? And, and was on your path of sobriety, was he able to accompany you on that path? Or was it just kind of kicking out the friends off the couch and that, but he still was taking his shots or, or going out without you? Or how was, how was it transitioning? Um, you know, he, he did cut back a little bit at first. Um, but the, the reality was that, you know, when, when he had quit, um, narcotics six or seven years earlier, um, he had basically replaced them with alcohol. Um, and so no, he wasn't shooting heroin anymore, but, um, he was definitely drinking, you know, 
three or four like 24 ounce beers every night when he got home from work. Um, and you know, on days that, um, he didn't have work or we went out to dinner or whatever, there would be liquor and, you know, all kinds of other things involved. So, um, you know, it, it was more cutting out the people around him without taking any responsibility or doing any shifting of his own behavior, you know? So tell me about, um, so during the pregnancy, was still part of the honeymoon period, but you said things changed after you delivered your son. Yeah. Once Solomon was here, it was like, um, it was, I describe it as a light switch flipping. It was, um, you know, everything seemed fine until the baby was here. And then suddenly like I legitimately couldn't leave. He had me trapped and he knew it. Um, and as I've, you know, gotten further away from this and done more research and um, worked with other survivors, I've begun to really see that um, this is this is purposeful. This is masterful manipulation. This is something that abusers do regularly is create this false sense of security until they know that they have control. And he certainly did. He had uh, full control of the finances. Um, everything was in his name, the house, the bills, the cars. Um, you know, I had nothing. If I was going to walk out of the door, um, I wouldn't have access to anything. Um, so it was about, I think Solomon was, um, maybe six months old or almost a year, right around a year old. Um, the first time that Justin physically uh, assaulted me and went to jail. Um, there was a person at our house that I had repeatedly said I didn't want there um, because he had a history of hard drug use and um, had threatened um, another one of our friends and his friend's kids. And I didn't think that this person was someone safe to have around our son. Um, and I came home from going to have dinner with a girlfriend one night. And this person was sitting on my couch with my son in his lap. Um, and wow. I immediately asked Justin to walk back to the bedroom with me. And um, I told him, you know, I told you I didn't want this person here because I didn't think he was safe and you know I come home and our kid is sitting in his lap like this is not okay I need you to get rid of him I'm gonna go put our son to bed and I went and took our son into his room and nursed him and sang to him and did all the things that I do to put him to sleep and when I come back out this person is still there um, mm. and so again, I confronted him and said, I need you to ask him to leave. If you do not ask him to leave, I'm going to tell him to leave. Um, and he said, no, you can't do that. This is my house. You're going to do what I say. Um, and I normally, um, up until this, that night had de-escalated at that point. The, that was the moment when I started actually getting scared when he would tell me like, no, you're going to do it my way. But I don't know if it was just what it was about that particular night, but that night I stood up for myself. Um, and that it is was probably your maternal instinct to protect yeah. your child. It probably yeah. is what that's <laughs> a very, very strong, deep instinct that, it's, it's just what makes us mothers because you could put up with a lot of crap just directed at you that you're not smart you're you're nothing you can't survive without me but then when he kind of just will not remove this person that you see as a threat to your child mm -hmm. that that would that's what empowered you that night so you didn't de-escalate and and then what happened um, it, what happened is what unfortunately happens really often for women when they do choose to stand up to abusers, um, which is he, he got more violent. Um, he ended up 
hitting me several times. He threw me across the room. Um, I uh, tried to leave and he prevented me from uh, being able to do so, grabbed me and pulled me back into the house and slammed the door several times. Um, and eventually I was able to get past him and run for the back door. And I didn't realize that one of his friends was in the back room. Um, and so he followed me in, he chased after me and he grabbed my phone out of my hands and threw it into a fish tank. Um, and then he started choking me. Um, and when he started choking me, his friend saw what was happening, realized what was going on and intervened. Um, and as soon as Justin realized that somebody was watching him, that somebody else was there, he dropped me. Um, and I was able to escape and get in my car and, um, because I didn't have a phone, I wasn't really sure what to do with myself. Um, you know, I didn't have my son. I had to leave him there because every time that I tried to go into his bedroom, Justin threatened to hurt him if I tried to take him. Um, so my dad was a firefighter for 25 years and he had always told me, you know, if you're in a situation where you don't know what to do, or you don't know where to go, you can always go to the fire station, anywhere you are, any wow. fire station, you can knock on the door and they will help you. Um, so that's what they did. And the firefighter that was there got me a glass of water and called the police for me and um, the police were able to meet me um, at my house and um, they took Justin to jail that night. Um, and the next day, um, I gave my dad the money to go bail him out. Um, wow. Uh, my dad told me that he would have a conversation with him and that he would make sure that he understood that this was not okay and that this needed to change. And, um, you know, he told me that he had faith that um, God would open Justin's eyes and, um, you know, that it would be possible for us to work through this. Um, and I was terrified. And at this point, you, you had, you're, you guys are not married. I didn't miss that part, right? You no, we never, not, we never got married. Okay. And why, between what happened overnight, like what made you go to bail him out or have your dad bail him out? Uh, when I called my parents and when they came in um, to, to be there with me that night because I was so scared, um, you know, my dad really convinced me that it was possible for this to be okay. And that, um, you know, that he could talk to Justin and that, um, when he talked to him, he could convince him that this behavior was not okay and that things would change, you know, um, my, I, my parents, loved him. Uh, it took a lot for me to get them to stop um, being in regular contact with him. And to be honest, I still think that my, my family talks to him behind my back. Um, you know, they, they have a... So he's uh, really a, a chameleon because it would, I would be hard pressed to to put myself in their place like I I mean yeah I can't imagine of, of charmer I have three sons yeah yeah if somebody hurt my child the way that this man hurt me I could not imagine even being able to look at them without being sick you know um but my he was really good at um, you know, that like silver tongued manipulation as these kinds of men typically are. And um, he really, truly convinced my parents um, along the way that he was the, the best option for me and that, um, you know, he could um, take care of me. And, um, you know, a lot of this comes back also to the, the Christian church and the idea that like you 
are still kind of the property of your husband and um, you know those kinds of underlying things around femininity and masculinity that are woven in to that um, that religious background and my father is a pastor um, at a Southern Baptist church and so I think that you know he he saw himself in Justin in a lot of ways because he had been an alcoholic and, um, you know, I think he'd probably been violent towards my mother at some point. And um, when he found Jesus, um, he replaced his addiction to alcohol with um, pouring all of his time and energy into the church. Um, and so I think he, he felt for Justin and he wanted to, um, give Justin a chance to um, to change his life the way that my dad had, you know? Yeah, no, I and I was going to ask that, but I didn't necessarily want to dig at it because, you know, that wasn't necessarily um, what we discussed before. Um, and, you know, I totally want to be respectful of your story, but something about that definitely clicked for me that there's some simpatico going on between your dad and Justin because oh, yeah. again, between, a, you know, dads and their little girls, that's like, right. that's one of those, you know, that's one of those bonds that, that, you know, I talked about the maternal instinct, but the dad and the little girl is a whole nother um, thing in and of itself. And so for him to be as sympathetic I was thinking that he must be seeing him through oh, yeah. those eyes of having been a man who made mistakes. But the, the, the difference is what I've learned through many experiences, you can't want for somebody else what they don't want for themselves. So Absolutely. I, I, you know, I can want you to be clean and to be sober and to be healthy, but until you want it, it won't happen. So Absolutely. me wanting it for you it is really not going to change anything. It has to be. So at some point, your dad made some big decisions for himself right. that changed his life. But so, and I totally understand the situation that you found yourself in that following morning, your parents had come up, people that you respected, and they kind of maybe made you feel like you'd overreacted. And Right. that he's a good man let's not you know do anything too rash let's not make him lose his job let's not you know rock the boat too much let's get lose him out of stability, jail lose your financial support lose the house that you lo lived in you know I totally understand where my mom was and I think that this is something that we do as women a lot of times to our daughters and part of that like mother wound that we have is that um, older women know just how easy it is to be punished for being too loud or for demanding too much or, you know, this whole long list of things that we're not supposed to do. And so for years and years, like hundreds of years, our mothers have been trying to protect us by telling us to sit down and shut up and submit. Um, yeah. So I think that that was part of what was happening there too. It's just like my mom was going, you have a kid now, you're not allowed to have an opinion. You're not allowed to like do these things that you used to do. You need to like just focus on taking care of your kid until your kid's old enough to take care of itself. Um, so I think that that was definitely part of that and is something that happens pretty regularly to us in this society. And I guess underlying that is who the hell cares what happens to you. Right. There's yeah. not, in this <laughs> storytelling, you're not telling me that, you know, that there was anyone to, you know, really wipe your tears, address. I mean, the hero in this story so far is the firefighter that evening, basically. I know, right? Got you the glass of water and, um, and <laughs> let you calm down a little bit and, and made the call to the police. But yeah. so... I guess to so how much longer after the first time that he hit you did you stay and and tell us about you know the strength that you finally garnered to to leave and what was that like 
Um, so that uh, incident happened in November of um, 2015, and um, I left um, the following May of 2016. Um, And what happened really in between those two dates um, was that the verbal and emotional abuse intensified. Um, And, you know, he wasn't physically hurting me, but he was definitely working hard to make me feel small and feel helpless. Um, And um, the other thing that that happened um, was that he, I started waking up in the middle of the night to him um, forcibly having sex with me. Um, And I, I didn't really know how to navigate that um, because this is supposed to be my partner. And like, um, to be honest, like our sex life hadn't been great um, since we'd had the baby. And so I like had this weird thing going on in my head about like, maybe this is his way of trying to like introduce more spontaneity into our sex life or whatever. But um, you know, I was, I was gaslighting myself um, Mm -hmm. because, the that spring in April and May, I took a second yoga teacher training. And by the end of that second yoga teacher training, um, I had done enough um, growing and shifting again to realize like he was sexually assaulting me regularly. He was verbally and emotionally abusing me and that if I did not get out that it was going to get worse. Um, and so I made a plan with a friend and my mom to pack all of my things one day while he was at work and to be gone before he got home. And I left him a note. Um, and I moved in with a friend and um, lived, um, Solomon and I lived in her living room uh, for a month. And um, I, I took Solomon back over there to see him a couple times a week. Um, and he used every time that I would pick up or drop off Solomon as another opportunity to manipulate, um, profusely apologizing and promising that we would go to therapy, promising that he would go to therapy on his own. Um, you know, because of the, um, the incident the previous November um, here in Texas, one of the things that happens when you have a domestic violence charge is even if you as the woman do not uh, press charges, often the state will pick up the case and um, put you into an anger management or batterer intervention and prevention program. Um, so he mm-hmm. started doing that and he was able to start using some of the languaging they were using within that program to manipulate me into believing that he saw the error in ways that he was going to be different. Um, and so about three weeks after I had left, um, there was a night that he, um, started feeding me glasses of wine until I, um, was not capable of driving and then told me that it would be safer if I stayed there at the house. Um, and I woke up in the middle of the night to him on top of me again. Um, and and I got pregnant. Um, and immediately I went into like, holy crap, I'm going to have another baby. I have to figure out how to make this work. Like, I guess I'm moving back in. And so I moved back into the house and, um, I, did you share with him at that point that you were pregnant the second time? I did. Yeah. Um, I was terrified and, um, I moved back in and I tried to figure out like how to make it work. And I was pushing him to do all the things he had promised me to go to therapy and do couples counseling and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, he refused. Um, and he he had you at this point. Yeah. Um, and I was sitting on a friend's couch and I was crying and I told her that I felt so guilty because I was already a mom and I was supposed to want 
this baby. There was this thing in me that thought that like, once you became a mom, then you have to always have the baby. You have to always be a, a mom, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and I was like, I just, I'm scared and I feel ashamed that I don't want this baby. And she looked at me and she was like, you do realize that you have a choice, right? Um, and it was like the, the rose colored glasses, the walls just (laughs) shattered. And I realized like, I was trying to figure out how to have this baby because I was terrified and I was terrified because nothing had changed. And if I had this baby, I would never, never get out. Um, and so I made an appointment at the local clinic and, I told Justin that I was leaving for real this time. Um, and he, you know, just up and down all the, all the terrible things that he could say about me, but I did it when there were other people at the house. So I knew he wouldn't physically hurt me in front of those other people. Um, Mm -hmm. so I left and, um, when I went in for my appointment, I was 12 weeks pregnant. Um, it, so I had to have a DNC and it was a, a crazy, painful experience for me emotionally. Um, but at the same time, it was a really empowering experience because it was like, I have, I have bodily autonomy. I have control over my body and myself and nobody else can tell me what is best for me and my child. Um, that is powerful that that is and that I feel that that statement right there to have bodily autonomy to to know that no one else can tell you what to do with your body that's what everyone is is trying to deprive us of and and you're telling us in your very honest way of what it was like to live in the hell that you were living in and you were going to again sacrifice your life to go Mm -hmm. through it all again until um you know a friend said you don't have to do this like we you you have other options and so that I mean what was it easy to go not not but not mentally or even like physically easy, but just walking through the doors of the abortion clinic, were there protesters? Was it a yeah, more quiet situation um, or how, what was the actual going to the clinic like? Um, so there, the clinic here, the main clinic in Dallas, um, that's not Planned Parenthood, um, there's there's basically two. There's this place called Southwestern Women's Surgery Center, and then there's Planned Parenthood, um, and there's basically two locations in Dallas where you can receive um, a pregnancy termination. And um, this particular place um, was always full, always booked. It was you know four hours of being there the first day and six hours of being there the second day because Texas requires a 24 hour waiting period between when you have your initial appointment and when you can actually receive care. (coughs) And because this place was always so full, there were always protesters outside. Um, And, you know, it's usually really heavily religious folks who are doing things like holding crosses and, um, you know, pictures of, um, (coughs) excuse me, pictures of babies and, um, you know, saying all kinds of things like God loves you and your baby and, you know, you don't have to do this. Um, And, you know, every once in a while you'll get somebody who's really militant and, and screaming about this is murder and you're a whore and all that kind of stuff. But the vast majority of the people who show up are really, um, I think genuinely trying to do something that they see as right and trying to like, quote unquote, save a life. Um, But what they really don't understand um, is that I was trying to save my life. Um, And my life is more important than the life of this, like not even actually 12 week old clump of cells. 
in my mm -hmm. world, you know? And um, so walking into that clinic and having those people there, you know, shouting things at me that they didn't understand um, was infuriating. And I, I wanted to scream at them and I wanted to tell well, that's them. It's interesting that, that you had, that you felt anger um, because I think their purpose is to make you feel shame mm. and guilt, mm -hmm. but good that you were, you were uh, possessed enough of yourself to, to, to understand that that was yet another group of people that were trying to manipulate you basically. Absolutely. And you know, this whole experience was really uh, a practice in me taking my power back. And um, this was me standing up for myself in a really tangible way in my life um, because I had spent so much of my time letting other people dictate what I did with my body, you know, and um, having the chance to make that choice for myself um, as difficult as a choice of a choice as it was um, gave me the, I guess, courage and confidence to continue making choices for myself that were in my best interest, regardless of what anybody else said or wanted of me. And that's so important that that was the beginning for you of, of taking your power back from all of these outside relationships, outside uh, people, um, outside circumstances that were trying to, to change that. So, so you had the termination, you had a safe termination, your recovery went well. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the process of finally severing ties and, and, and moving forward. Um, it's been a long and arduous process. Um, but I have been super um, lucky to have a community around me that um, has been able to help. You know, my uh, parents offer childcare for my son and um, I now um, have moved into different work. Um, at the time that all of this was happening, I was mostly teaching yoga and um, waiting tables. And now mm -hmm. I um, am a priestess and an ordained minister. I offer coaching and spiritual counseling. Um, I teach at the wellness center where I work and I have a line of herbal products that I make. Um, and I'm working on starting a nonprofit that I've been um, working on for several years to provide um, all of these services that I offer to survivors of domestic and sexual violence like myself um, for free. And so okay. in the process of building this community and um, doing all of this work, um, I have found myself more and more supported as um, I go along. And so, you know, he had some moments where he attempted to come back into our lives. And, um, you know, I did try to maintain enough of a relationship with him to where my son could still see his father. Um, and uh, because of that, he did one more nice manipulation job on me and on my family. And um, he ended up getting uh, back into our lives pretty heavily. And um, he assaulted me again um, this past December. Um, oh, my so gosh. I had to um, completely cut him out of our lives at that point. Um, so he's actually on the run from the police right now. They can't find him. Um, he has a felony domestic violence charge waiting for him when they do. Um, and he hasn't seen my son or me uh, since December 17th. Of, of last year? Of, of, of last 18. year, yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, two years I mean, after, after I left. <laughs> so this is, I think this is the other thing that a lot of people don't realize about domestic violence and intimate partner violence um, is that the violence doesn't stop when you leave. Um, you know, and a lot of people are just like, oh, why don't you just leave? Or why didn't she just leave? And the reality is that the, the two weeks after you initially leave, you are 70 times more likely to be killed by that partner. The first 90 days are by far the most dangerous of the entire relationship. Um, and even after that point, that capacity for violence still exists. I mean, I left him finally in um, July of 2016, um, early August of 2016. And he assaulted me December 17th, 2018. You know, this is a full two years after I left that the violence resurged. Um, so, you know, when, when you are dealing, you know, anybody that's listening, when you are dealing with someone who is in a violent situation, um, do not try to pretend that the violence is going to stop the moment that she walks out the door or he walks out the door because it's just not true what would you advise to a person in that situation because your you that the, the last few sentences that you just said are um is is new to me honestly and you know i'm not going to sit here and say that I'm anyone's expert on domestic violence. My background on it has been more with knowing that during pregnancy and kind of the, the whole pregnancy, postpartum, all of that can be the most dangerous um, point in the relationship. But I think I naively assume that once you left the household, I mean, obviously anyone can call you and leave, you know, mean messages or send you text messages. So the, the mental violence can still continue. But I really did think that once you were not under his thumb, not needing him financially, that, that it would end. Yeah, unfortunately, um, that is not the case. It's kind of the, um, well, if I can't have you, nobody can um, thing that happens. And um, the majority of women who are killed by intimate partners are killed after they leave. Um, so I would recommend if anybody that is listening is in a violent situation and they want to leave, or if you know somebody who is in a violent situation and you want to help them leave, find the local domestic violence shelter uh, because they are going to have the tools to keep you safe. Uh, They're going to have the tools to help you safety plan. They're gonna have the tools to get you hooked up with the lawyers you need to get protective orders and to get legal protection. Um, and they often are going to have places where they can put you um, where your abuser will not know where you are. Um, so I highly recommend using those tools in your communities. Um, because it can be a really, really scary world if you try and just walk out on your own. That is such good information. And in our notes that will attach to this, we will um, give the 800 numbers and definitely more information about leaving. Um, so let's focus, I guess, on the the new Daphne, the the Daphne that's healed and whole. Tell me how yoga played a role in um, in strengthening you mentally, physically, spiritually. Hmm. So yoga really, um, the main thing that it did was reconnect me to my spirit and my spiritual path. Um, you know, there are definite benefits um, physically, and you know, it helps with stress relief and uh, you know, physical pain. And, um, I, I practice power yoga, which really helps you to find, um, stamina and endurance and like mental power that you didn't know you were capable of. Um, but the main thing that it did for me that allowed me to move through what I have moved through, um, is reconnect me to, to God and to give me a, a belief that everything that I have survived, 
um, had a purpose. And I truly believe that I walked through what I walked through um, so that I could do things like what we're doing right now and talk openly about my experience, talk openly about what um, you know millions of women across the world are living every single day and um, give, hopefully, it, even if it's just one of you in the audience, an opportunity to go, oh my God, I'm not crazy. This shit is not okay. And I can survive. I can leave and I can get better. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be okay on the other side of this. Um, and, you know, along that path, yoga wasn't the only thing, you know, I discovered, um, Hinduism and yogic philosophy. I discovered uh, witchcraft. I discovered Native American um, spirituality. And I have found a way to um, see and honor all paths as equal paths to spirit. And um, because of that, I have been able to really open my arms and heart to a wide swath of humanity and connect with them where they are, whatever spiritual path they're on. I can talk to them about that path and um, help them move through similar traumas um, and, you know, come out on the other side uh, stronger. Um, and so I call the main ritual that I facilitate and the coaching program that I facilitate um, pain to power. And it's based on the idea that everything that has ever happened in our lives has a purpose. And um, the places where you are most wounded are the places where you are called to work in this world. Wow. That's amazing. That, that is, you've done a complete 180 to become the woman that you are now. And um, I really hope that your history, your story blesses someone, as you said, to not think that they're crazy. Because so many, I, I see so many parallels in women that I've worked with in your story, but I'm just so happy that you were brave enough to share your story you know, the good, bad, the ugly, places where you made mistakes, but then places where you found your strength. And so um, I'm praying and hopeful for nothing but the best for you. Um, and to, you know, we will want to um, give information about your wellness center and, and your thoughts about um, helping other women heal. But um, I just want to thank you so much, Daphne. Is there anything that you feel you that we didn't cover that you feel is important to get out there or anything that you want to say in closing? Um, you know, the, the only thing really is um, that your voice matters to every single one of you that are listening, you know, um, I can't do this. Um, Makunda can't do this. We, we can't be the only people speaking truth around these issues. And um, the more we talk as women, the more we heal. So um, as scary as it may feel, um, be honest with the people in your life about what you're walking through and what you've survived and reach out for support. And, um, you know, I truly believe that the more we build community and the more authentic and honest we are with each other, um, the less those who would hurt us have power in our spaces. Um, so, yeah, I just encourage everybody to get really honest with themselves and the people around them and to choose to use their voices. Well, thank you for joining us at Uninhibited. And I hope that this um, exchange, this interaction, this conversation blessed you as much as it blessed me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Uninhibited. You can find more episodes to download at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also continue the conversation at uninhibited.community on Facebook, where you can like us and share. And you can continue chatting on Instagram at uninhibited.podcast. Special shout out to Trap Quilo for the beats.